Okay, I think we'll make a start. Thank you all for coming on this rainy evening. Um, my name is Robert Faulkner. I'm from International Relations and the Grantham Research Institute. And this is an event sponsored by the Grantham Research Institute and the International Relations Department. So we're very pleased uh, to have both institutions behind this event. Um, I'm just going to give a brief introduction to the speaker today. And uh, before I do that, let me lay down some ground rules. We are now encouraged to do this uh, very firmly. First of all, mobile phones should be, well, if not switched off, then put on silent. Because secondly, uh, you're encouraged, well, or at least you're allowed to use your mobile phone to send little tweets. I know um, uh, some of you may cringe at the idea of doing that, but um, you know, um, perhaps it's a generational thing, I'm saying to the front row. Um, um, the hashtag, I'm, I am of course including that, the hashtag for this event is LSE risk. Yeah, just LSE risk. Um, don't abuse that uh, phrase for anything else. LSE risk. It focuses on risk regulation. Yeah? I should also mention the event is going to be recorded and there may be a podcast at the end of this event. Again, I need to emphasize may, if there are technical problems, I can't guarantee anything. So that's by way of uh, introduction to the LSE routine. Um, let me now introduce the speaker. I'm very, very pleased to have David Vogel here, who probably needs no introduction to most of you. David holds the Solomon Lee Chair in Business Ethics at the Haas Business School at Berkeley, and he's also a professor in the Political Science Department, so he easily bridges both these sides of that divide in the social sciences. He has published widely and has covered the transatlantic divide on a number of issues. In fact, um, he's crossed the pond frequently also in, in real life, having uh, not just uh, spent many happy months, I assume, at European universities as a visiting uh, professor, EUI in Florence, at INSEAD and at Hebrew University. Uh, but I think he also spent some time in France to imbibe European risk cultures uh, uh, life, which of course is fortunate for us, so we can get him to come to the LSE on the Eurostar. His publications are probably far too numerous to list here. I've counted something like 15 books. Um, that's a bit intimidating, I have to say. Uh, you, you obviously need to slow down uh, soon. Uh, many of those will be familiar and are still on our reading list going back to your uh, 80s books. I'm thinking of uh, National Styles of Regulation, which I think is still very widely read, comparing American and UK regulatory approaches. Trading Up, Consumer and Environmental Regulation in the Global Economy, which has very much promoted the very, the very notion of trading up in the California effect. And then The Market for Virtue, I think the best book on corporate social responsibility, which has sold wildly uh, as the most authoritative treatment on that topic. I won't mention the other books. But we've now got a new book in front of us, which has published, it's been published just over a month ago, I'm told. And that is, of course, the very topic of this lecture today, The Politics of Precaution, Regulating Health, Safety, and Environmental Risks in Europe and the United States. And as you know from the announcement, the very question that David will address is why it is that the European Union seems to have overtaken the United States as a global regulatory leader. On that topic, we're very much keen to hear your thoughts. And please join me in welcoming David Vogel. Thank you. Very much.
Thank you. Um, what undermines uh, and informs my research is the sort of following puzzle, which is that in so many cases over the last five decades, when you compare regulations, risk regulations, health, safety, environmental regulations, uh, in European countries or in the EU or the United States, uh, one finds very different, different policies, different perceptions, uh, different risk appraisals. So, for example, uh, in the 1970s, the risk of ozone depletion was a highly visible issue in the U.S. Uh, there was a major uh, uh, spontaneous consumer boycott of aerosol cans, um, and eventually a uh, multi-billion dollar industry was essentially banned uh, in the United States. Ozone depletion took much longer to catch on in Europe. Um, when a U.S. corporation uh, uh, published and, and uh, promoted um, aerosol-free cans uh, in Britain, uh, their sales went down because British consumers continued to want um, uh, the aerosol cans. Um, and, uh, and so we see, uh, and European perspectives and policymakers said, well, you know, we don't have enough evidence that the ozone layer is thinning. Uh, why uh, put resources and regulatory resources into changing and challenging such an important industry? Uh, the issue of lead and petrol, um, uh, U.S. moves very quickly in the early 70s uh, to be restricted and ultimately to, uh, to ban it. Uh, the debate over the health impacts of lead and petrol much more controversial in Europe. Um, the European can take a long time to address it. Uh, much controversy in Britain, and even when Britain moves to embrace a more uh, precautionary policy, uh, there's still debate about whether or not um, this was really a worthwhile use of regulatory policies. Uh, if you look at drug approval, uh, in the early 60s, we have the thalidomide dis uh, disaster, uh, which affects, of course, both Europe and the United States. It affects Britain uh, and Germany much more than the U.S., um, and yet the United States responds by enacting very, very stringent standards for new drug approval, while the British and French do not. Well, recently, uh, antibiotics and animal feed, a very important issue, um, uh, banned uh, heavily restricted in the U.S., um, uh, not a highly visible issue in, in, in Europe, not a highly visible issue in the U.S. GMOs, uh, every GMO application in America has been approved. They dominate the American food supply and many agricultural crops. GMOs, of course, much more controversial in Europe uh, and, uh, their, and their introduction uh, much more heavily restricted. Uh, global climate change, again, a similar pattern, uh, uh, little debate in, in Europe about it, the science behind it, uh, while uh, in America remains um, uh, highly contentious. So these are the same technologies, essentially the same risks, the same real world we all live in. And why do we get these different patterns of responses uh, across the Atlantic? And my basic analysis, way of, I think a useful way of thinking about this, and really the premise of the book, is that um, these differences in risk perceptions and policies form a pattern. And it's an historical pattern, which is to say, roughly for 30 years, from 1960 to 1990, three decades, on the whole, American standards were more likely to be more risk adverse, more stringent, more comprehensive, more innovative, more precautionary. And over the last 20 years, the opposite is the case. European standards tend to be uh, uh, more likely to be more stringent, more innovative, more risk-averse, or precautionary. So if you want to know a particular regulatory policy, a particular chemical or risk, whatever it is, and you want to say, um, where is it more stringent? Who enacted more stringent policies to begin with or first, or has persisted to do so? It seems to me the key question to ask is, when did that policy, when did that risk emerge on the political agenda? 
And if it emerged on the political agenda in either side of the Atlantic before 1990, the chances are very strong, much more likely, that the European, the American regulation is more, was more stringent. If it emerged on the policy agenda over the last 20 years, it's much more likely that the European standard is more risk adverse. So that's sort of the basic um, uh, framework. Um, and I think there are many other examples of this. I mentioned drug approval. Uh, U.S. pesticide regulations in the 70s are more stringent than in Europe. Many pesticides are banned in the U.S., permitted in Britain. Um, uh, automobile emission standards much tighter in America than in Europe. America moves much more rapidly to ban lead and petrol than the Europeans do. And I mentioned ozone depletion. Uh, I'll give you another example of the SST. Um, uh, supersonic transport. Uh, there's a lot of debate in America in the 60s uh, that the, uh, new, this new technology posed unacceptable risks, credible risks to the ozone layer um, and you know, potentially major negative global environmental impacts. Uh, this leads the U.S. Senate to uh, deny funding. The British and French, on the contrary, uh, this issue with the environmental impact of the SST, this new technology, is never even debated, uh, and, gov and both governments move uh, forward with almost no controversy to support this new technology. If you look in the last, more recent 20 years or so, uh, again, the pattern shifts. Uh, beef hormones banned in Europe, still permitted in the U.S. Milk hormones, um, not permitted in Europe, uh, permitted given regulatory approval in the United States. Um, uh, uh, climate change, uh, a serious commitment to address uh, climate change issues in Europe, approval of Kyoto, uh, not approved in, in the United States. Uh, REACH, the European New Chemical Directive, uh, much more stringent and comprehensive than anything enacted um, in the United States. Um, your European Cosmetic Directive, the same, banning many substances which are, whose use is permitted in the U.S. ROHS, the uh, regulation regarding uh, hazardous materials uh, in electronics, um, uh, which the EU moves to phase out or eliminate a set of hazardous materials in electronic products. Um, there's no federal regulations governing hazardous materials in electronics. And of course, GMO is another uh, example. So there are, I think, you know, overall, the, the pattern is quite striking. Now, it doesn't, although this is the dominant pattern, it isn't the exclusive pattern. And there are two exceptions which I talk about in the book, which I think are worth mentioning. One is um, automobile emission standards uh, for uh, health-related pollutants, uh, which remain more stringent in the United States, um, particularly in California, but also nationally in the United States. Um, uh, the new U.S. standards, uh, Europe, Europe still trails behind, in part because of the problems of the Central and Eastern Europe with their, their problems of, um, of, uh, of, of, their, of their older cars. But nonetheless, the fact is that U.S., from the beginning, 1970, and to, and to this day still has the strictest automobile emission standards um, in the world. And the other exception, which is a little different, is uh, pharmaceutical products. Um, and that's an area where you have convergence, where basically European and American standards, you look at the FDA, the EMEA, um, their approval rates are pretty similar. Um, there's no more drug lag. A, drug, a new drug is, is more likely to be approved in Europe as in America. Uh, the rate of the, uh, the time it takes for a new drug to be approved is pretty comparable. So that's, an, that's another exception. That's an area of convergence. But I think those two policy areas are exceptional to the broader pattern. Okay, so that's the basic, my sort of story, my uh, dependent variable. Um, and then the question is, uh, how do we account for this? How do we account for these policy shifts? 
This is a challenging question. Every one of these policies has its own story, its own set of interest groups, its own set of pressures. Um, but I think there are three broad perspectives which I think usefully can help us understand both policy shifts. That is, to help us understand why in the U.S. you have this 30 years of dramatic expansion of regulation, of health safety regulation, and then it just levels off. It just stops increasing. While in Europe, you have regulations lagging behind the U.S. in many policy areas, and then all of a sudden, uh, beginning in the early 90s, it takes off. Um, and uh, the EU continues to issue a variety of stringent standards. So how do we account for um, uh, why basically this trading places? Um, why does the U.S. Uh, slow down, if you will, um, and the EU speed up? What accounts for the, uh, the propensity or willingness of a government, a democratic government, uh, to, enact, uh, to enact or not to enact a whole set of relatively stringent regulations? I think there are three factors which I think underlie these broad changes in policy across the Atlantic, both sides of the Atlantic. And they each play an important role and they're related to each other. One is public perceptions. Um, regulatory policy is very much driven by public opinion and public pressures, public demands for more stringent regulations um, have become stronger in Europe and weaker in the United States. So that's public pressures are a big part of the story. The second is the preferences of policymakers, uh, the people, the policymakers governing the EU and the federal government um, have had very different perspectives. Uh, European policymakers much more supportive of more regulations, U.S. policymakers much less so. And the third is the criteria by which governments assess risks, risk assessment criteria. Um, and I think there's been shifts on both sides of the Atlantic. The precautionary principle has made it easier for European authorities to impose more stringent restrictions, and cost-benefit analysis and risk assessment in the U.S. has made it more difficult. So that's sort of the broad um, picture, and let me try to um, uh, illustrate and, and, and lay this out in more detail. Public perceptions. Okay. So what drives um, new regulations? The world is always full of potential risks, right? There are always zillions of things we could worry about, and there are always activist groups and people in the press alleging that various things are unsafe. Um, so the question is, um, do they become credible? Do they, get, do they capture the public's imagination? Uh, do they actually lead to a big drive in demand support for uh, regulation? And a lot depends on credibility. So if I allege, for example, that the upholstery, you, I allege that the upholstery, or some activists argue that the, the upholstery in which you're sitting on in this room uh, contains some hazardous chemicals uh, which could uh, be linked to birth defects on uh, second generation. Um, what should we, how should you respond to such a claim? Well, one way, you, you don't have any scientific knowledge, you don't have any independent ability to assess the, the, the chemicals in, that, in, the, uh, in the material which you're sitting on and leaning on. Um, well, you look at, you know, you look at the past, you say, well, people have made similar claims. Did they turn out to be true? Did they turn out not to be true? Um, is it linked to other risks that I've heard about, which I find credible or uncredible? Um, uh, in other words, is there a sense in which uh, do I decide at the end of the day that I should worry? And worry enough to demand that the government protect me by removing, in this case, removing the, this upholstery and replacing it with uh, upholstery without these cosmetics? Or do I say, well, I'm not really worried. 
they assure me it's okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to accept those assurances. So it seems to me that part of what's driven um, policy changes is that um, the degree that the so-called alarm bells, the credibility of alarm bells, the willingness of the public to get concerned and worry about new risks and find them credible and take them seriously, like in antibiotics and animal feed, like in GMOs, like in hazardous materials in, in uh, cosmetics, I'm sorry, in, um, in electronic products, um, uh, like uh, uh, BPA or uh, phylates uh, in children's products and food products, all on and on and on, all these kinds of risks. Um, it seems to me that uh, what has happened uh, is that um, Americans basically, um, the saliency of, of new kinds of risks has diminished in the U.S. Uh, it's the stuff in the media, but it doesn't sort of catch on. But in Europe, I think there's been a shift. So one way of thinking about this is that um, what drives regulatory policy is the gap between the public's demands for protection and the existing level of protection. And so as the public demands more, and then, uh, this, and then, and then as it demands more and more, uh, and then regulation keeps on um, uh, expanding, but there's a gap. Um, what I think has happened in the United States in many ways is that gap has diminished, uh, that basically um, public expectations and policy have caught up with each other, um, and the degree of public pressure, the, the ability to mobilize public opinion by activists to demand changes in policies that people decide are needed to protect them, that really threaten them, uh, that has diminished in the United States. Um, uh, but, it, but, it be, but it has become much more visible uh, in Europe. Um, I started work on this book in uh, 2000, 2001, which I spent on sabbatical year in uh, France. And um, I felt I was in a time warp. Um, all the concerns about food safety, the joke in Paris uh, was uh, not what did you have for dinner, um, but what did your dinner have for dinner? Um, uh, concerns about, you know, mad cow and, um, and other, uh, you know, hoof and mouth disease, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there was a, I, so it was a sense, I felt living in a world in which um, all the time in the papers, on the media and television, there were always new things to worry about and people found credible. Uh, and politicians leaning, competing with each other to show how much they cared about the public by enacting new, by enacting new standards. Um, that was the world uh, in America in the 80s and 90s, uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, it's a world which I think stopped to exist, um, but a world which has grown in, grown in Europe. So the first issue um, is, is this public pressure. And I think we have some poll data. If you, for example, look at public opinion on GMOs <coughs> in Europe and America, the contrast is day and night, okay, uh, Europeans are, um, lots of Europeans are, are aware of this, they're aware of biotechnology and find it um, uh, potentially threatening hazardous to their health or to, to, the, uh, to the environment. Um, uh, GMOs, basically, uh, the US American public is oblivious, they trust government, um, and it's basically um, uh, just an acceptance of them. It's not a salient issue. Okay? So that's a big difference between public opinion, and that, I think, explains a lot of policy differences. If you look at climate change, again, the survey data is very striking. <coughs> Broad consensus among European publics that the science behind climate change is credible, uh, but, it's very, but it remains very divisive in the United States, much less not much of a consensus. So that's one part of the story, which is public pressures 
Um, and I th as again, I think there's been a shift on both sides of the Atlantic. Activist groups have become more influential, more credible in Europe, less influential and credible in the US. Um, demands, new pressures get, have gotten more traction in Europe, less traction in the United States. The second is the preference of policymakers. And here, I think the story in brief is Republicans and the European Union, which is to say, in the United States, I think the key story at the policymaker level is that regulatory policies, health, safety, environmental regulation, which was formerly largely bipartisan, where the most important expansions of environmental regulation in America took place under Republican presidents Nixon and George W. Bush. Beginning in the early 90s, it becomes partisan. Uh, the Republican Party shifts, and Republican politicians uh, decide um, that they are going to oppose all new efforts to uh, expand the scope of health, safety, environmental regulation. And that resistance has persisted, obviously, uh, to this day. Uh, this makes policy making very difficult. It, 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 this partisan division is very important. And by the way, it's reflected in mass opinion. So if you ask people, you know, the best predictor in America as to what you think about climate change is if you're a Democrat or Republican, which is quite extraordinary. Okay? Um, the best predictor of whether you want more or less regulation is whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Uh, that was not true before, um, before, the early, before the early 90s. So that, the, that partisan difference has made a big impact. It's really slowed down the ability of the federal government uh, to enact um, a more stringent regulations. So in 1995, the same year that the Republican Party, a much more conservative Republican Party, captures control of both houses of Congress, Finland, Austria, and Sweden join the EU. That's very consequential, okay? Three very member states with very green preferences. They join the EU, and they join a, a green coalition, which had historically been led by Germany, the Netherlands, um, uh, and Denmark, uh, but often quite isolated. And you now have six member states with strong pro-regulatory preferences. Equally important, Britain, which was often seen as the regulatory laggard, as sort of the dirty man of Europe, shifts policy preferences. And the British government, and particularly many policy areas, including chemicals and climate change, um, becomes much more supportive of more stringent European standards. And France also shifts. Um, particularly on GMOs, but also climate change in other areas, asbestos, et cetera, France moves towards in the pro-regulatory camp. So you have a big mass of powerful member states which want more stringent European standards. Now, more broadly, I think the EU, at the end of the day, although I think has played a critical role um, in promoting more stringent standards in Europe. Uh, it has been more likely to reflect the preferences of member states that want more stringent standards than those that want laxer standards. Um, and I think one part of the story is that, which you see in the beginning with the single market program in the um, Single European Act, 86, 87, the EU essentially, um, EU policy elites made a sort of deal, which is, uh, what, we, what, do, what does the EU care about most? The single market. That's the beginning and end all. That's what drives, that's the raison d'etre of the EU, the single market, right? Reducing barriers to trade among the member states. In exchange for public support or acquiescence of the single market program, which is, of course, very controversial, the EU essentially drives a bargain with the European public, which is the strengthening, the, the, the removal of trade barriers, the creation of a single market, 
will not, we assure you, will not come at the price of weakening national health, safety, environmental standards. On the contrary, it, harmonization will make them stronger. That's basically the deal, okay? And I think the EU understands the people who run Brussels. Uh, that their legitimacy is very much bound up with that. Um, and when member states try to uh, impose more stringent standards, um, Brussels is quite hesitant often to challenge them, um, and, more off, and more likely than not, um, the many of those stringent standards become uh, adopted. Um, uh, the Commission, I think, um, although obviously divided on these issues, does have important constituencies um, uh, that work closely with NGOs um, and that are, are uh, become a, a policy advocate. Um, the European Parliament is, although green parties have come and gone up and down, the European Parliament is arguably the greenest parliament in the entire world, uh, has often pressured, in policy after policy area, pressures the Council and the Commission uh, to enact more stringent standards. Lots and lots of cases I talk about in the book in which you know, the Commission Council wanted to be more accommodating to business, uh, and, the, and Parliament pushes them in the opposite direction. So, Again, um, so a big contrast then is uh, partisan divisions in the U.S. Um, and, um, and, um, and, and, a, and a European Union, which for a variety of political reasons, decides at the end of the day uh, that it is going to uh, play a more active role in assuring all Europeans uh, that their health and safety, uh, the, the quality of their environment will, be, will improve rather than be undermined by the single market program. I think that's important. The third dimension is risk assessment. And this sort of gets into uh, sort of the fun part of this um, effort, project. Now, when we think about risk assessment, uh, one way of thinking about this, simplistic but I think useful, is you know the world is divided between false negative and false positive policy errors, which is to say we can get it wrong two ways. One is we can regulate something which turns out to be safe, that's a false positive policy error. Secondly, we cannot regulate something which turns out to be unsafe. That's a, like mad cow. That's a false negative policy error. Okay. There's always uncertainty on risk regulation. The science often can be ambiguous. You know, if the studies show something is unsafe, well, we could do some more studies. Maybe it will prove to be safe. If something seems to be safe, maybe some additional research. There's always a degree, not always, but you know, we all know smoking kills people. But on the whole, in many of these areas, um, there's a lot of debate. You know, antibiotics in animal feed, for example. You know, does that cause antibiotic resistance in people? You know, people disagree, right? There's scientific arguments on, um, on both sides. GMOs, I, there I think actually there's more of a scientific consensus, um, but, um, but uh, more public reaction. Um, but I think, in, you know, and probably on climate change, it's probably true. But in other, a lot of these other areas of chemicals and cosmetics, nanotechnology, um, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of there's room for play. Okay. In Europe, largely as a response to mad cow, but other 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 issues, um, the European Union adopts the precautionary principle, and the precautionary principle very complicated, zillions of articles and books on it. But I would argue. The, the essence of the precautionary principle is, if you're not sure, avoid the risks of false negatives. If you're not sure, regulate. If you're not, to, it lowers the burden of proof which you need to prove something is unsafe and raises the burden of proof you need to prove something is safe. 
So the precautionary principle, it seems to me, basically says, we don't want any more false negative policy errors. We don't want another mad cow nightmare. And all things being equal, we're going to, um, when we're in doubt, when we got public pressure, we're going to move towards more cautionary, more stringent policies, even if the scientific evidence is unclear. Let me give you an example of this. Violates in um, children's products, okay? So a lot of debate about whether or not um, uh, 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 children who suck um, bottles and, and uh, other thing, little uh, other items with children spend a lot of time in their mouths, whether or not the, um, the, the through, this, through sucking these products, um, it gets into their bloodstream and creates, violates, these chemicals are harmful. So the Dutch um, take a bunch of guys and um, they have them spend 15 hours a day sucking on all these baby things for a month. Far more than any baby would be exposed. And they measure their blood. Reasonable. And they say, this stuff is safe. Okay. Subsequently, the commission, in a rule I never quite understood, decides to ban phylate-treated baby instruments, baby implements, uh, baby toys and things, from their own daycare center in Brussels. The European public is outraged. It's good enough. You know, this is safe, but how come your own children, you're protecting them? And the EU bans phylates in children's products. You know, one, two, three. Um, and the scientific evidence is not conclusive, uh, probably both sides on the, other, uh, on the other way, but the EU moves. Uh, the FDA, by the way, um, uh, basically says um, we, we can restrict it because the scientific evidence is unclear. So, um, so I think that um, uh, this, you know, the risk assessment, the change has made a big, um, a, a big difference. Now, in the United States, it's very different. Okay? The United States, you get a big backlash not simply by business, but by even, you know, and conservatives, but also mainstream policy analysts, um, people like uh, Breyer, Supreme Court, Supreme Court Justice, a Democrat, um, and of course Cass Sunstein, who uh, runs regulatory affairs for the Obama administration. And if you look at their research, and it's very influential, and you have this stream coming out beginning in the 80s, 90s, I mean, their argument is, look, American regulations have wasted huge resources. And they have, we have spent huge amounts of money regulating things that turned out to be unsafe. We've been too responsive to public preferences. We've had lots of false positives. We need to be more careful. There are real harms in regulating things that don't need to be regulated. We really pay a price for that. And so the effort in the United States to use risk assessment and cost-benefit analysis and this whole elaborate structure, which has been reinforced by the courts, by the way, which have also held uh, agencies to much more stringent standards, I think is largely informed by a very powerful set of arguments, which is that our big worry is we don't want any more false positives. While in Europe, it seems to me, the broad thrust is, again, oversimplified, but I think it makes sense, we don't, any want, we don't want any more false negatives. Um, so I think now it's important to note, of course, that um, both kinds of risks are real, right? And they're both harmful, right? So more regulations are not necessarily better, and less regulations are not necessarily worse, right? Depends on how you call it, right? You can err on both sides. But it seems to me the broad thrust in, in policy 
um, uh, has shifted. Um, and that um, for a variety of reasons, um, uh, policymakers in Brussels and the, and the European Court of Justice, which defers very importantly to Brussels, to the Commission and the Council, unlike in the United States, where the courts are more than willing to overthrow and challenge um, uh, administrative regulations on the grounds that they don't have enough scientific evidence of harm. Very different, okay? Uh, U.S. firms, you know, on Pfizer, on antibiotics, animal feed, sues the Commission and says, you know, you're banning all these antibiotics, you don't even do a risk assessment. And the, count, the European Court of Justice says, we defer, we defer. The Commission thinks it's unsafe, we're okay. Big difference. So those three factors, I think, have played an important role. Now, what I think has, one important consequence of, of this shift in stringency has been to um, shift the focus of global regulatory leadership from the United States to Europe. The EU is now the global regulatory hegemon because its, its standards are the most stringent and it has the world's largest market expansion to Central and, uh, and uh, Eastern Europe. Um, European standards are become de facto the global standards. More and more countries, countries are much more likely when they look around, look at these risks, they're much more likely to adopt European standards than American standards. Uh, they want access. And for global corporations, Brussels is the benchmark. Because if you can sell it in Europe, you can sell it anywhere. So it's stringent and, and large markets. So there's been a big shift uh, in global regulatory leadership. Um, the Commission, and not coincidentally, uh, wants to, of course, to export European regulations to the rest of the world and puts a lot of effort into doing so, spends a lot of time cooperating with other countries, and they've been quite successful. The EU, is normative, as a normative leader, soft power, has played a critical role. And one sees this in international environmental agreements, which used to be led by the U.S., and now virtually every new international environmental agreement, biosafety, biodiversity, climate change, chemicals, et cetera, uh, over the last 20 years has been led by the European Union um, and not supported by the United States. So that's a big shift in leadership. And the EU has, has, becomes an important role. When you look at other countries in the world, they look to Brussels, not to Washington. Now, one okay. Now, one difference, final point I want to make, sort of looking at this pattern, is that if you compare the two periods, so if you look in the, you know, the earlier period, the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, when the United States regulates something, not always, but pretty often, the Europeans follow. Yeah. So we move on lead, eventually the Europeans follow. We move on automobile emissions, Europeans follow. Um, ozone depletion, we move, the United States moves first, but then when we get Montreal Protocol, you know, agreement, the Europeans come along. So on the whole, and every international environmental agreement supported by the United States through 1990 is endorsed by member states or the EU, without exception. Okay. So if you look at the process of diffusion, for those 30 years you see a process of diffusion from Europe to the United States. And European activists are constantly citing American policy. You know, um, Mercedes cars the argument is, um, uh, when they're sold in California, have really strict standards. How come they can't apply to Mercedes cars sold in Germany, et cetera, et cetera? Okay? So you do see this sort of broad, um, broad set of pressures. However, in the, the last 20 years, 
the dynamic is very different. The U.S. federal government pretty much ignores what the Europeans do. You don't see a move in the opposite direction. Okay. Washington is oblivious to Brussels. If anything, you know, they, to the extent that they're aware of European concerns, it's, they see it as health, they see it as uh, trade barriers and, um, and overregulation. But they don't sort of look and say, gee, the Europeans are worried about this. Maybe we should be concerned, too. It doesn't work, doesn't work um, uh, that way. Um, so America is a, an exception to the European influence on other countries. However, there is an exception to this exception, which is American states. And what has happened, because of the leadership of Europe and because of the absence of federal regulation, many American states have adopted their own policies in these policy areas, many of which have been strongly influenced by the European Union. Um, uh, I'll give you one example, my own state, California, you know, in almost any policy area, I know the, um, the 28th member state is going to be Croatia. Croatia? Croatia. Croatia. I know that's going to be the 28th member state, but it could well be, uh, uh, barring some technical issues, um, California. give you an example of the influence of Brussels on California, okay? California passes legislation on uh, regulation of restriction of hazardous substances and cosmetic products, and um, electronic products, ROHS, passes the California version. In the statute, it says, if the number of hazardous substances regulated by ROHS, by the EU, changes and increases, those changes will automatically be adopted into California law. It's extraordinary. Look at the cooperation on climate change, um, uh, cosmetic regulation, chemicals, on, 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 um, uh, uh, um, California, um, and, and other states, to a lesser extent, have adopted um, uh, many European standards. So what this means, essentially, and the irony is, that because they've been able to get away with this, the American single market 50-state market is actually more fragmented than the EU is. The EU single market actually works. Countries, you know, things get harmonized, okay? And it's pretty unusual for, um, uh, for member states to enact, to be allowed to or be willing to enact uh, standards which really undermine the single market in important ways. Um, uh, if California were a, a European member state, if California were Germany or Sweden, it could never get away. With the, with the things it has done. It just couldn't, okay? Um, so ironically, um, although the American single market exists in 1789, um, uh, in fact, um, the U.S. standards have become um, uh, more diverse um, and, uh, and uh, in the absence of federal policy and because of the influence of Europe, um, uh, U.S. states uh, have begun to, have imported many European standards while the federal government um, has, um, has not. So that's sort of an interesting, um, interesting uh, dynamic, which I think um, is important. So anyway, final comment, which is this. Um, the question is, you know, why don't you get sort of more pressure on the federal government to do more? And part of the reason, I think there are many, part of the reasons is that because many U.S. corporations have voluntarily adopted European standards for all their products, and many states have regulated, um, for many Americans, through the market or through the state they live in, they're already living, quote unquote, in Europe. 
and higher, with higher standards. And so therefore, the pressure on some ways in Washington is diminished. I'll give you an example, um, food safety, okay? U.S. has, the FDA has rules uh, governing uh, organic food, organic labeled food. Food labeled organic in the United States complies with every single European food safety rule. It can't be made with GMOs, it can't be made with antibiotics, can't have beef hormones, can't have milk hormones. In other words, if you buy organic products in the United States, organic meat, food, whatever it is, you essentially are living, you are essentially consuming food as if you were European. And so, for, for many Americans, there's a market solution to federal regulatory failure, namely, go out and buy it. You want, you're concerned about cosmetic safety? Buy L'Oreal. They're, they're American products, all meet European standards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Apple is making prodigious efforts to uh, reform their electronic products uh, to conform to ROHS uh, and also begin to engage in electronic recycling. Hewlett Packard conforms to our, you go on any, any U.S. firm electronic website and they list the extent to which how the progress they're making in conforming to ROHS. You go to chemical firms, Dow Chemical, DuPont, uh, the efforts they're making to conform to REACH. And these are voluntary efforts, voluntary efforts. Um, so in that sense, um, there has been uh, an import of, uh, of, uh, of European standards, for better or worse, to America, but it's taking place through states and through the market, uh, not through, um, not through uh, uh, Washington. Uh, and in that sense, the, the, uh, the, the gap between Washington and Brussels on these policy areas, uh, which has been very strong over the last two decades, um, uh, shows no signs of, of diminishing. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Do you want to take a seat here and I'll take yeah. questions? Um, it doesn't happen very often that we have American guest speakers here who talk about the US and Europe and make us feel very good on this side of the pond. So I think you, we've got to have you more often. Um, um, but um, perhaps we want to now probe some of these arguments. Perhaps it's not all so rosy as it may seem in Europe. Um, who knows? Anyway, I'm going to take questions now and um, we can um, have a fairly um, interactive session here, uh, but if, if, if there are too many, then obviously I'll take it in groups. Um, so who would like to kick off? Yes, please, over here. There's a microphone coming your way. Do we have a microphone, please? I think it would be useful. Could you please say who you are and um, whether you're from the LSE or not, and then Kick off. And yes, please, questions rather than statements. Um, yeah, thank you very much for very interesting stories. Um, I'm a Japanese student studying food policy in City University, so your talk was very interesting. So I'd like to have your comment to see this. How do you see which side Asian com uh, com com uh, countries are on this American side or EU side? And how can you apply these precautionary principles to Asian trade at the moment? Because, because I see food. Now, China, it's not a matter of Asian countries only, I believe, because food moves around in global levels. And now China is the biggest producer of pork, biggest producer of feed, um, feed animal feed is made more than uh, America's. And now China is becoming a kind of food factory to Asian countries and also the world. And now a whole bunch of um, trade agreement is coming, South Korea's and EU, and 
uh, TPP, as you know. So in this situation, which side Asian um, uh, countries uh, belong to, and how can you apply these precautionary principles, yeah, which I the, believe um, is better? Well, I mean, it's clear that if you export food to Europe, it has to conform to European uh, standards. Uh, and Europe remains a very and is an important export market for Asian agriculture. So, I mean, the, the short answer is in many of these policy areas, not just food, uh, the answer is Europe. Um, uh, Korea, Japan, um, even China, to the extent that it begins to adopt um, more stringent environmental regulations, uh, looks to the European Union rather than the U.S. Um, uh, yeah, there was a period on the, actually the phylates with, the, with uh, the children's products, where the Chinese were making two sets of toys with phylates for America and without phylates for Europeans. Uh, which is a little bizarre. Um, and, but eventually, U.S. got around to banning them, so now they can make one group of toys. Um, but um, but I, I think, on the whole, um, uh, the size of the European market and the influence of Europe is much stronger than in, in the United States, which I think makes it you know, more likely that they will have more stringent standards, on the whole. Just follow-up question. Yeah. There is more resistance, though, in, in Asia in terms of agreeing international standards that the EU would like to impose. If you look at climate change. Right. So, I mean, this is a kind of a de facto follow-up in Asia. It's the market force of Europe rather than the intellectual regulatory force. Um, yes, not completely. I mean, Korea has adopted and Japan have adopted something similar to ROHS. Um, uh, uh, electronic recycling. It's not. It's it's not only the mm. the market factor. Um, there's also just policy learning. Mm. Okay. All right. Sorry, there was a question, gentleman, at the top. Yeah, with the white shirt. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, my name's uh, John Duncan. I'm from. Uh, I'm an ESG analyst at Old Mutual Investment Group. I'm based in South Africa, so it's great to hear the speech. Two questions for you. Um, did your research pick up the influence of um, lobbying and legislation around lobbying and influence of those groups in terms of policy making? Um, and then the second thing is, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the emerging regulation around fracking, shale gas fracking. Um, obviously there's debates emerging in the US, um, there's emerging legislation and research and you've got a similar thing happening in Europe. I mean, are we heading towards some kind of convergence uh, around this topic across um, the the two geographies? Uh, on, on the lobbying, um, I think you know the real story is that um, business preferences on both sides of the Atlantic have been fairly similar. So most of these regulations, who have the whole 50 years, are opposed by companies on the whole. Um, but what's interesting is that um, the ability, and, and so, and on the European standards, uh, the lobbying groups, uh, global firms, consume, Americans as well Europeans. I mean, they were equally opposed to REACH, equally opposed to RGA, climate change. I mean, there's enormous cooperation on the business sector, okay, which is they don't like more stringent standards. Um, but what I think is interesting is that um, those efforts have been less successful in Europe than in America. Um, business loses, is more likely to lose or make concessions in Europe. Uh, and it hasn't had to make those concessions in America because in part of Republican support, I mean, they can count on to veto things, and I think there's been less grassroots pressure um, uh, to do so. The fracking is interesting. I mean, um, you know, it's fun to watch. Uh, I think the U.S. policy is going to be reasonably permissive on fracking. Um, uh, states, of course, have their own regulations. Some will be more stringent, some will be less stringent. 
Uh, I don't think the feds are going to um, uh, impose any standards that are going to really delay it. Uh, they just came out with some new regulations on methane and the you know, gases from fracking, and they're reasonably moderate. Um, uh, uh, you know, the business, most firms think they're okay. Uh, they just announced regulations on uh, reporting chemicals used in fracking, and you don't have to wait till you can report them after the fracking, not before. So I think the American policy, you know, is going to be, um, you know, reasonably supportive. Um, I've not followed developments in Europe, okay, um, but I would think that, um, uh, you know, if my analysis turns out to be true, I would predict that whatever standards are adopted in Europe, they will tend to be more stringent. But I think it's, it's early days. And so I, I, my, obviously I can't predict, it, my analysis wouldn't predict every single policy, um, but I think it makes it more likely, if I had to make a guess, I would say be more likely that the U.S. standard would be, would be more permissive than Europe. There was another question there, and then I'll come down to the front row. Yes, please. Uh, my name is Yuuchiyama, an associate professor of political science at the University of Tokyo, Japan, and currently visiting academic at SUAT. Uh, I'm doing comparative politics too, so uh, your talk is very insightful. Thank you. And, but I'd like to ask, uh, uh, sorry, uh, and you, you pointed out uh, three factors that contributed to the trading prices between EU and the US. Uh, and uh, it is uh, very persuading, uh, but I'd like to ask what uh, bring, brings about or uh, changes in these factors? Uh, say, uh, uh, why uh, do the Green parties get power in some countries? Or, uh, 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 you know, in what uh, I, sorry, under what conditions uh, does public uh, does the public demand more strict uh, regulation? So uh, I'd like to ask you uh, uh, if uh, you think uh, there it's uh, uh, sorry, uh, you, uh, sorry, do you think uh, it is because of some? Contingent factors or, or contingent events like uh, nuclear power uh, accident or uh, occurrence of BSE, or uh, do you think there are some structural factors underlying them, like political institutions or so? Yeah, and I think there are many factors. I think the uh, contingent factors make a difference. So, I mean. You know, we tend to, when we hear about a new risk, we tend to associate it with other risks that we heard about and link it um, in one way or the other. Um, uh, I think those linkages are important. I think, you know, BSE uh, has enor had enormous policy linkages um, and continues to horn. I mean, it even informs reach. Uh, uh, I mean, the, you know, the European uh, powers that rule Brussels um, don't, you know, have enough problems to worry about needless to say, um, and they don't want to add by getting something. They'd rather be more stringent than, than get exposed to, um, the, you know, they prove something turned out to be hazardous. Um, political preferences are interesting. I mean, I don't know why the Republican Party has sort of moved so much on this issue, um, but I think what is striking is the, um, the left-right distinction on these policy areas is much less salient in Europe. So, you know, you don't have a right and left center division on, um, on health, safety, environmental regulation anywhere near the extent that you have in the U.S., that makes an enormous difference. Europe is more like the bipartisan, rough bipartisan 
multi-party consensus as America used to have uh, before 1990. Okay, all right. Could I have the mic down here? There are a few questions, and, and then I'll come up there. Um, Matthias first. First row, please. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting lecture. My name is Matthias Kuniger-Kibuji. I teach here at the, at the LSE. Uh, and you partly addressed the, my question uh, in your last comment about left-right. And I was wondering if, uh, uh, if the three causes that you highlighted could be described all as a reflection, all three, uh, essentially of a more general trend of uh, shifts in left-right position. So Americans, the median American voter, has just moved right-wing over the past 30 years, 30 40, year, 30, 40 years, and attitudes to regulation are one component of a broader set of changes. Uh, and I think political scientists tend to, see, tend to say that left-right are meaningful because they're actually uh, relatively yeah. uh, coherent sets of beliefs, yeah. despite the fact that they are address a number of issues, while the Europeans have not. I'm not perhaps saying that the Europeans have moved to the left, but definitely they have maybe not moved to the right to the extent that the American public opinion. And that both applies to public opinion in terms of preference for regulation, to policymakers, and also the regulatory philosophy that is... Uh, uh, adopted. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think I think that I think that's important. Um, one point I would make on the uh, public opinion in America. Um, it's, what's fascinating is if you look in the late 80s, um, and as in Europe, this is high levels of concern. You know, do you think our life could continue if we don't change our policies? You know, really, very very high sense of sort of you know worrying about the future of the world. Um, and then in the early 90s, the surveys show all of a sudden. Um, do you think the government is doing a good enough job protecting you? Yes. I mean, there's suddenly a consensus a movement towards the status quo. When the Republican Party in, nine, in the mid-90s comes in and tries to roll back health, safety, and violent regulation, they confront an enormous public backlash, and their efforts are virtually unsuccessful. And the current efforts of the Republican Party in Congress are equally unsuccessful. I mean, basically, Americans have come around to oversimplify they lack the regulatory status quo. It's sort of like Goldilocks. Not too hot, not too cold. They don't want a lot. There's not big pressure for more regulation, but there's also not big support for less regulation. Um, and that, and uh, so liberal efforts to expand uh, go nowhere, and so far conservative efforts to roll back, I think, go nowhere also, or go get very little traction. So in that sense, it's been a shift but toward the center rather than to the right. Shouldn't we expect a similar trend in the European context? Why? Should we not reach a plateau? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I wanted to move away from the cyclical theory, you know, you have 30 years and, you know, seven years of rain, seven years of famine. Um, uh, I want to try to move, uh, uh, so I didn't want to make a cyclical argument. Is it possible um, that the EU will slow down? Sure. I don't think it's inevitable. Um, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen 20 years, but yeah, I mean, it could slow down. Um, I don't see much evidence of this. You know, Brussels keeps on humming. Um, a lot of these things don't get a lot of profile, but um, you know, reach continues to be, you know, be implemented in serious ways. Um, uh, and um, other, other cases, uh, you know, if you look at BPA, again, another you know 
highly visible substance, the chemical in, um, in uh, again, children's products and also in food packaging. You know, the EU has moved to ban it. The U.S. has not. That's quite recent. Um, upheld by, you know, held, upheld by the courts. Um, so I think, um, you know, I don't see, I don't see America changing. That's clear. Um, and, um, you know, this, the rate of growth of regulation in Europe is probably slowing down a little. But, you know, um, it's, it has a momentum, a path dependency, which has not been, to date, effectively changed. Now, I know you have a better regulation initiative, and you know the Europeans talk about all, you know, with adopt American standards for risk assessments, and there's all this big push. Um, I don't see much policy impact. Um, uh, I, I just, I, I don't see a big backlash um, that you had in the U.S. yet, at least from the public. Mm -hmm. Could happen, but I don't see it yet. Okay. Andrew. Thanks very much. Um, Andrew Walter from the International Relations Department here. Um, I interpreted what you said as, in effect, also the breakdown of the California effect, or at least yes. the partial breakdown yes, of the California exactly. effect. And I, and I thought in terms of your uh, framework that I assume that the reason for that breakdown is some interaction between public public opinion and political preferences in the of, US. of elites yeah. within the United States right. that's that's eroding that effect. Um, what you said about public opinion um, was slightly inconsistent with what I thought I knew about American public opinion and its relationship to elite opinion. Um, Hacker and Pearson and others, for example, argue that what's happened in the United States is not that public opinion has moved or the median voter, but that the parties themselves have yeah. shifted to the right, and particularly right. the Republican Party. But if you ask Americans what they think about social welfare, at least, a related area, at least they claim Americans still favor it. Um, it's just the party positions uh, that have moved, not public opinion. The other thing about public opinion which um, slightly puzzled me was that you said that Americans trust government to do the right thing, whereas levels of trust in, in government in the United States and in Europe, of course, have plummeted right. over the last two or three decades, yeah. the period yeah. that you're talking about. So help me out here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the Pearson Hacker work um, doesn't deal with these policy areas. Okay, so I think, it, I think it's... Um, no, I do think there's been a shift. I think uh, 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 there's been a bias that suggested towards the status quo. Um, so that's moving towards the center, not to the right on these policy areas. Um, uh, Americans, you know, still like think environmental protection is important, health and safety is important. Um, uh, there's just less pressure to, um, to, uh, to increase it. Um, on the California effect, I mean, the California effect has become the Brussels effect. You know, with the rest of the world adopt, you know, moving their standards up to match those of the EU. Um, but California's impact within, um, within the United States, um, and, uh, and California is also affected other states. Um, but their impact on federal policy, uh, some areas, auto, uh, auto um, fuel economy standards, does show that old standard. But otherwise, um, it has diminished. But, you know, California has, rather than being the vehicle to export American standards to Europe, California has become the importer of European standards to the United States. Its role remains central, but it's shifted. Okay. Um, Bridget? Uh, I'm Bridget Hutter from the Sociology Department here at the LSE. Uh, thank you very much, David. It was, it was 
entertaining and interesting as ever. Um, I wanted to pick up the point that, 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 that Robert, Robert started, really, which was, might we expect to change in Europe? Because I think there is a, an increasingly strong, um, better regulation, anti-regulation, what you want, um, movement in, in Europe, and certainly quite strong in the UK, and I think becoming stronger in Europe. And I wonder if we might expect that to get stronger as uh, double-dip recessions are hitting Europe. We've got economies very weak, some of them, falling apart, some of yes, them. Yes, and yes. at those points in time, regulation is, is predictably one of the things that gets argued about and becomes the focus of, of anger in all sorts of ways. Um, and we're seeing that in the UK. I mean, the, the Queen's speech yesterday about what's expected for the next year in Parliament, one of the, the main bills in there was the anti-regulation game, um, or they call it regulatory burdens. There are all sorts of normative language used. So I just wonder if we might expect some differences to be happening there. Um, I suppose a second question uh, focuses on the public opinion bit. And for, for me, I think that's the sort of weaker part of your thesis. Um, partly for reasons that Andrew's already outlined, but also I think there's some research here, for example, by Christopher Hood and Will Jennings, which showed that there, there was a sort of rather haphazard effect of public opinion on policy. So, so while there might be a lot of noise at the beginning, if you followed the policies through to see if they, um, or you followed the, the noise through to see if it resulted in, in regulatory reform. It didn't always. Sometimes it did. Sometimes it didn't. So that's quite haphazard. So for, for me, that was perhaps, in a sense, the, the, the weaker part of, of what you're looking at. And I suppose, thirdly, related to those things, I, I wonder if Europe has become much, um, much more worried and shifted because, because of the disaster effect. I mean, things like BSE had an enormous uh, influence in, in, in matters of trust, which I don't think have ever been really repaired and, and maybe won't be. Um, add that to all the sort of STS literatures about, about what, what happens, in trust in experts and trust in science. I think it's been particularly shaken in Europe and, and maybe that historical legacy is, is, is perhaps more important than the broader public opinion point, although intricately related, of course. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let me start with the last. I mean, BSE has had a big impact. Um, uh, no question that its legacy is enduring. But you know, I, I, um, you know, one looks. I'm a little more skeptical. I mean, take you know, take thalidomide. Okay, so thalidomide um, was a, a real, a real major policy failure in Europe, okay, Britain and, um, and Germany. Um, was not a policy failure in the U.S. because they hadn't been approved, and yet. That same event results in a dramatic shift in U.S. drug approval policy, the Kefalover Amendments, right? Just transform drug approval policy. And Britain and Germany, where you have all these people injured, make virtually no changes. So that suggests to me that catastrophes can have an impact, but they'll necessarily have an impact. Um, uh, so there, uh, my view of public opinion is, um, I mean, I think the reason why it's one of the three variables is that it doesn't always, it's important, but it isn't always central. So it, it can't tell the whole story, but it plays in, uh, a role in some policy areas. So the, the relative importance of my three variables varies among the policy areas. So I think each of them plays overall an overall role, but I would not be adverse to the notion that their particular policies 
um, which they don't play an important role. But other areas where we do, I mean, take, you know, GMOs, okay? So here, you know, there's a strong scientific consensus, you know, there, there's no health negative, you know, no harm, where we have, you know, now Americans have been exposed to them for a quarter century and they're still alive. Um, Move to the right. And they move to the right. That could be <laughs> that probably it. Um, okay, so, so why does... I no, forgot this enough. is recorded, so I'll have to have that deleted afterwards. So, you know, why doesn't... Um, uh, why, aren't Euro why aren't GMOs in the European food supply? Well, because Europeans don't want them. That's public opinion, period. That, that matters, okay? Um, on the backlash... Um, I appreciate the fact that the Better Regulation Initiative and that every government is trying to streamline and align, you know, the recession and all that stuff. But what I'm, and I've tried to follow the, the Better Regulation Initiative closely and carefully and write about it in the book. But I don't see, I see many areas of regulation, big backlash, let's streamline, they're excessive, Brussels, busybody, nanny, all that, like I, you know, there's a lot of sentiment but it doesn't seem to link to health and safety issues. I don't see a backlash there. I just don't see it. I see it in other areas of, of intervention by Brussels uh, and by British government, but I don't see it, I just don't see it. Maybe it's there, but I don't see it on health and safety where someone says, you know, um, uh, we have, we're giving the Europeans, we're spending, the European environment is too clean. You know, we, you know, we can't afford it. Um, uh, our safeties, our food safety standards, um, they're too stringent. Let's relax them. I don't see that. I mean, it could happen, but I don't see it. Okay. Or oh, British rail standards, you know, maybe real British rail safety, maybe we should relax it. We're spending too much money on avoiding accidents. I don't see big pre public pressure to do that. Okay, um, I'm going to take groups now, because the okay. list keeps growing. Um, so, um, Let's finish in the first row, please, Henry, over to you, and then I'll, I'll, I'll Henry, come up. Henry Rothstein from King's College. Um, when you were talking about Europe, I suppose I was just, in my mind, I was wondering, well, to what extent is your description of Europe really descriptive of member states, or whether you're just describing Brussels and the logics of kind of policy making in Brussels? And I kind of thought, well, actually, when I think about EU risk regulation, I often think about implementation gaps, that people sign up to what look like tough regulations, but actually, they don't often get put into practice. And that's one way, in perhaps, which we kind of manage what you see as kind of tougher regulation. Certainly, when I've done research on kind of public opinion and risk regulation, I found, yep, often public opinion does kind of produce strong regulation, but then it never really gets implemented, poorly enforced. So in the end, the kind of the, the traditional interest groups kind of win out in the end. So I just kind of wondered if, you know, the, there's possibly an element of worth looking at some of those kinds of issues. Right, I know, I know. And then the lady up there. Tasha Fairfield, I'm at International Development here at LSE. Uh, just to follow up on some of the comments and questions that have been made on the public opinion side of things. Um, I wonder if it's, in your view, not so much public opinion per se as organized demand making on the part of consumers and, and activism on that front. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that was something that came out in your earlier work, um, fluctuating fortunes on right. explaining the rise and fall of business power, but not so much just public opinion as the really 
organized demand making, perhaps. Okay. Should we take these two? Yeah. And then okay. I'll uh, respond to the second question. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. The question is, you have all these NGOs running around making claims about things are you know, inappropriate, uh, risks are unacceptable. The question is, do those claims resonate? Do they capture the pe people's imagination? And I think what has happened in, in America for those 30 years is they did, and they caught fire, and they had, you know, in Hollywood, phrase they had legs. They really, they got people mobilized, and politicians responded. Um, their ability to mobilize public opinion and to get people to take their claims seriously has diminished in the U.S. I think it remains strong. I think it's become stronger in Europe. So, right, it isn't the public sitting passively. It's people making claims which the public then decides are credible. And I think, you know, Europeans are much more likely to find those activist claims credible uh, than is true in America, which is what drives the policy. Um, on uh, the enforcement gap, I think, yeah, there's a big enforcement gap. That's true on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, I think that's right. Uh, you know, U.S. regulations used to be criticized and Congress enacted all these sweeping standards so, you know, to transform nature in the world, and there was a big implementation gap. That's true in Europe now, too. I mean, that's the nature of the regulatory beast. Um, it still begs the question of why you bother to enact the stringent standards to begin with, and why America chooses not to. Okay, I'll come back to this side of the room, but let's just stay on this side, and then I'll work my way up. Hi, I'm Maria from the Grantham Research Institute. And my question has to do with the role of the media. So in the US, it feels like, well, it definitely seems that having a very bipartisan media has stymied politics and the political de debate from enacting or allowing regulation to go forward, especially when you look at healthcare and you look at climate change. While in the EU, media is devolved at the national level, while Brussels kind of is, it seems more insulated from media politics. So what are your comments on the role of media in creating that kind of bipartisanship? Yeah, I mean, it's not something I've looked at. Let me just, yeah, but I'll, 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 I'll be quiet. I'll go. I'm sorry. I'll give, sorry. You, I'll give you a moment to yeah, do okay. your research. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Can we go all the way to the top, the lady? Um, anyway, I'm sorry. Well, my name is Valerie Mathis. I have a couple of, um, just a statement, and I would like your opinion Could on... Questions only, please. Okay, what is your opinion on the Fukushima uh, disaster? And obviously, the Japanese are going to have some changes in their regulatory, nuclear regulatory system. The French aren't, I don't think, are going to do very much. It's not going to make a very much big a difference. And Germany, apparently, is, well, maybe because of the Greens being so prominent, are really going to probably make a change in their regulations. And of course, as you said, in California, I think the Californians uh, are demanding less nuclear plants. Now, I'm not sure if that's correct. Would you comment on the nuclear situation? The Fukushima fallout? Should we take one more? No, yeah. Okay, and then there was another one. Yes, yeah, please. Uh, thank you, Professor Vogel, for the important lecture. Uh, my name is Dennis, I'm a student in the International Development Department. Um, on the changes inside the United States, I'd be interested in your thoughts on the influence of the rise in the Sun Belt states, the Texas, Oklahoma, et cetera, the rising economic and political leverage that these states play in national politics, and the influence that that has had on the movement towards the right and the changes in the lax regulations, especially on the environmental front. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Should we go with uh, that? Okay. Um, I, the media, I mean, 
I didn't, I didn't find enough evidence be able to address that issue. Um, uh, I, I just don't know. Okay, I mean, I think that's a big part of this, could be a big part of the story, and I was not able to research it beyond my scope. Nuclear power is also beyond my scope. I mean, I had to choose which areas to focus on. I did not include nuclear power. Um, uh, there, I think there's much more uh, variation. Uh, South Carolina just authorized the first nuclear, nuclear power plant in the U.S. Um, you know, remain stable in France, you know, uh, retreating in Germany. That's a much more complex picture. Um, I just, I didn't, you know, I, I, not one of the areas I focused on, but it's worthwhile looking at. Okay. Good. On the Sun Belt, I don't, I just don't, I just don't know whether it's a geographic shift. Uh, I would point out that the, uh, one of the leading states in um, alternative energy is, um, is Texas. So uh, it's, it's not, uh, you know, there are, there are some um, uh, conservative states which have had some pretty progressive policies. But on the whole, um, when you look at state policies, um, it's pretty much conforms to Democratic versus Republican-dominated states. Okay, thank you. Yes, please, you've been waiting for a very long, very long time there. Hi, uh, um, thanks for the presentation. Uh, my name's Anders, I'm an environmental blogger. Um, I just want to ask about the question you said that, um, that California in general follows what happens in, in EU. And I'm also heard, correct me if I'm wrong, that when California regulates something, that other US states will have to follow that as well. Um, and then also coming out to that, that EPA have, within the last couple of years, have slashed a lot of their, their regulations as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, can you elaborate that, please? Okay, and there's another question here. Chris Main, I'm an environmental law student at UCL. I'm wondering if you think this emergence of kind of a regime complex de facto standards is beneficial to multilateral action. What was the question? Is this emergence of a regime complex of de facto standards beneficial to multilateral action, i.e. A, a global agreement? And do you see that as an emerging trend in global environmental politics? Are there more on this side? No. Um, on, the, um, on California, uh, no, I mean, other states uh, can or cannot choose to adopt California standards. I mean, it's the federal system. Um, uh, there are some cases in which uh, California is restricted on automobiles, for example. It requires federal approval. But in the other areas, um, the federal government has basically given California carte blanche. Um, corporations, by and large, um, you know, adopt those standards for all their products because California is such a large market, but there's no requirement that they do so. Um, uh, EPA, um, under the Obama administration, I mean, it's a complex story. Um, first of all, obviously, there's no new legislation on health, safety, environment. That's out of the question. Uh, so anything happens administratively. I think the administration has um, stayed a middle course. Um, they've, been, they've done some new things, but they've been cautious. Uh, they they um, are sensitive to uh, uh, you know major opposition uh, in Congress by Republicans in the House. Um, uh, they you know on climate change they've kind of skirted and uh, you know done it indirectly without confronting it head on. Um, other areas I mean there you know there's a broad movement in America to tighten restrictions on coal burning power plants which are being phased out. They're old. Natural gas is much cheaper and so you know there's sort of a nudging process. Um, but um, I don't see, uh, uh, you know, nothing compared to um, under, the, under, you know, 1990, the 
Clean Air Act, I mean, there's no, you know, no big, big policy shifts. So it's it's um, it's slowed down. Um, I don't think that um, uh, the, this, these, this multilateral action uh, by corporations or states is a substitute for effective global policy, but it's what there is. Um, and uh, you know, it is striking. I think that uh, global firms, many global firms, um, have adopted European standards for their American products. So. Um, without, of course, being required to do so. And so that, I think, is, you know, a pretty important development. So it might be the case that, you know, you don't have to um, have a Europe American cosmetic directive or an American directive on electronic waste or on, um, or on uh, uh, hazardous materials and electronics if every major corporation does it voluntarily because they're already doing it in Europe. Okay. Um. Could you go up there? Ken first, please. Yes, Ira. Thanks. I'm Ken Shadlin here at LSE as well. I, I, had a, I just was going to ask a question based on your last comment, which is what I don't get is if, if the firms in the U.S. are adapting to European standards, then why are the firms in the U.S. applying so much pressure to prevent those same standards in the U.S.? So sort of that's, I just find an inconsistency between what you're saying they're doing economically and what they're doing, as I understand, what they're doing politically. And then another one there. Thanks. I'm uh, Fanon Amarhertik here from MSC Environmental Policy in LC. And I just wanted to ask, one theory of regulation is that it's a response to real risks. You know, science, social sciences, they're finding out about bad things that can happen. And the reason why we want more regulation is that we expect government here to do that for us, to protect yes. us from those consequences. So is it less than perhaps about credibility of risks and more about our expectations of government and what they should do from us. So in the US if there's an ideology that the state shouldn't be involved in regulation in general but we should seek it from the market or elsewhere then that might explain the difference as opposed to maybe credibility in these risks. Okay, thank you. David. Okay, um, what was the First question was on um, American oh, firms oh, and consistency. Well, I mean, look at it cynically. Um, why bother? I mean, what's what's the point? Why bother to get another, have a new federal regulation? Everything's fine. What's wrong with the status quo? Well, that explains why they don't ask for it, but that doesn't explain why they invest resources in objecting. Yeah, I, I, most of these policy, yeah, and most of these policy areas, um, it doesn't get to the level. Uh, where um, they have to invest resources to oppose them. Um, uh, the, the Republicans are going to prevent the stuff from coming anyway. I mean, they don't, it doesn't even, we don't even, it doesn't get to that level. There's no corporate lobbying against reach in America. It's not on the agenda. Um, or RHS or all these things. It's not, it's, the federal government isn't even thinking about it. So there's nothing to lobby. Though I, I just recently read that um, on, um, uh, on on uh, BPA and bottles, I just saw, I saw a headline just a couple of days ago somewhere, some paper, that um, the industry now um, would like to see a federal ban, which is interesting, because there's already de facto federal. There's already there's no more. All the baby bottle companies have voluntarily abandoned it. I don't quite know what's going on there, but it'd be interesting to see if that happens. Actually, um, you know, the U.S. chemical industry would like to see the reform of chemical regulation. They don't want to see reach, but they would like to see, you know, modernizing it. A, a, a 1976 statute was the last chemical regulation in the United States. People, we've got, you know, we've learned a few things since then. 
They'd like to see some reform, improvements, blah, blah, blah. Congress isn't going to do it. And in a million years, this Congress is not going to enact new chemical regulation. It's just, it's just off the agenda. Um, on the enter I mean, I don't think that Americans um, have a problem with regulation. I think it is a matter of the credibility of risks. Uh, if something is, you know, if people are concerned about something, uh, they want government to address it. Um, you know, there are a lot of Americans who want, you know, consider the risks of climate change credible, and they want the government to do something about it. They just haven't been successful. So I don't, I don't see this anti-regulatory force in America. I think that Americans, you know, want governments to protect them about things which they find threatening, and um, I think they, they don't find as things as many as many things as threatening. I think the credibility is matters. I mean, if there was real pressure uh, from the public, um, I think policymakers, you know, would be in principle a little more likely to respond. Though it's important to recognize. You know, that given the role of the courts in America, even if there was pressure uh, to move towards European standards on some of these uh, chemicals, uh, the courts might well strike it down, saying we don't see evidence of significant risk. Uh, so, um, I, you know, it, it's, um, uh, that remains to be, uh, um, uh, you know, seen. But I think credibility matters. And, um, and risk is, you know, and I mean, you know, getting, I mean, like the classic case, which they didn't talk about in the book, you know, cell phones. Okay? So, you know, is there evidence that cell phones, you know, cause brain tumors? You know, no more or less evidence than a lot of other things the EU has banned, which is to say, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But of course, in a thousand years, no European country is going to restrict the use of cell phones because people like them. That's public opinion, not risk assessment. Public opinion matters. Okay, good. Are there any more questions? No. We've solved every problem. Yes. I'm, it, it was fascinating for me listening to your description of the, the big shift because I, my PhD was on ozone layer depletion, as you know. And I, I used to go through the archives in America, 1980s documents, and I remember the one summary that an American diplomat made of a meeting they had in the early 80s when the US still led. And um, the Americans were proposing to the Europeans, let's be precautionary. Science is not sure, but there's good enough evidence to ban CFCs. And to be precautionary meant, as the Americans thought, to ban non-essential uses first, because it wouldn't hurt so much, and then we could wait for more science to come about, and then we would know for sure. So they went to this meeting with the Europeans and said, let's ban non-essential uses of CFCs in aerosol spray cans, such as deodorants and cosmetics products. The British response was, Typically American, so emotional, you know, this, exactly. uh, that, that, don't believe in hard science. Uh, we, we should be cautious about that. And the French said, ban toiletries. Only the Americans could call that non-essential. <laughs> and so on, on both of these accounts, uh, this was struck down. And, and the, it German, took in the, the Germans said, you know, um, we're, we're not going to... The Germans were hoping to capture the market, of course, Hoogs and BISF. Yeah, I mean, but also they were, they were not enthusiastic about the ban also. Yeah, no, I think, you know, one point which you emphasize, which I just want to emphasize, which I want to make, is that the precautionary principle is not a European phenomenon, okay? I mean, in America, although not officially, of course, uh, uh, the, you know, by law, um, you know, I mean, I have throughout the book regulation after regulation, court decisions in the 70s and 80s, constantly 
uh, the precautionary principle, constantly saying we have to give the government the benefit of the doubt. If the, I mean, on lead, for example, you know, Ethel Corporation, which made lead in gasoline, sues EPA and says, look, you can't ban lead from gasoline. Uh, there's no evidence. The scientific evidence of harm is unclear. We, we need more firm evidence before you can endanger an entire industry. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, sorry, you know, it's plausible. We, EPA has discretion. The Clean Air Act is supposed to, you know, um, uh, you know, give people a great margin of safety. If you think there's, a, if you think there's a plausible possibility that lead harms people breathing lead in the air, go ahead and ban it. That's what the European Court of Justice says now, but American courts don't say that. They admit higher evidence, so there'd be a, there's a big shift. Um, and uh, you know, U.S. Po policy after policy area. Uh, Americans adopt more precautionary policies, like on ozone, than the Europeans, who say we want we want stronger evidence before we move. And now, of course, the Americans make the exact same argument. You know, stronger evidence before we move. They just switched. It's it's fascinating this level of amnesia that no one seems to remember. You know what the world looked like in the 80s is not so long ago, even you know for people like us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no more comments about generational differences. Um, David, thank you very much. Uh, spellbinding lecture, and thank you all for coming and attending the lecture.